Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the Alberto Hirschman Memorial. History may not repeat itself, but our bad ideas about it sure as hell do. Edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, I speak with historian Jeremy Edelman, author of the magisterial worldly philosopher, The Odyssey of Alberto Hirschman, a biography of one of the most dazzling intellects of the 20th century. I had intended to discuss with Jeremy both of Hirschman's best-known books about economics, one called The Passions and the Interests and the other called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. Plus, I wanted to cover Hirschman's astonishingly heroic early life as an anti-fascist resistor in four different countries, Hirschman's approach to economics, which was both intellectually and also physically adventurous, uh, and a few of Hirschman's essays, but this turned out to be way too ambitious. So instead, Jeremy and I focused this podcast on the passions and the interests, which is about the forgotten intellectual history behind the emergence of capitalism, and also a short book that I just really fell hard for. We also talk about Hirschman's intellectual disposition and some of Jeremy's own writings on the globalist approach to history. We hope to have Jeremy back on again this summer for another episode to cover Exit Voice and Loyalty and some of Hirschman's own life story. But for now, let's call this part one of Jeremy Edelman on the life and ideas of Albert O. Hirschman. Enjoy. Jeremy Edelman, thanks for being on the show. It's a pleasure. A little hard to know where to start when talking about Albert O. Hirschman because there's so much to cover. So why don't we try starting with his personality? Uh, He shunned the idea of a Hirschmanian doctrine. He preferred a different kind of approach to his work, right, to to his uh, study of economics and to the stuff that he produced. So why don't you just start by telling our listeners about his intellectual disposition, his Mm -hmm. approach to the social sciences? Yeah. Yes, he is in some senses a very elusive character in the sense that he doesn't have a fixed model or even a, an approach that he applies to problems around the world as he encountered them. But he does have uh, a personality, actually a very strong one. And here are some components of it. He is uh, almost always an inveterate optimist. And he'll find some ray of hope no matter how dark times are. And he saw a lot of dark times. He was at the same time a skeptic. We think of optimists as as non-skeptical. He actually was uh, skeptical of big theories, grand explanations. And he liked small. The scale that mattered to him was uh, the tiny, the everyday, not quite the minuscule. Uh, it had to be perceptible, and in fact, to be observed. And some of the, one of his books is called uh, "Development Projects Observed." He was very observational, but he liked to look at the things that we do in everyday life uh, to draw out larger concepts and to 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 see patterns. And that's something that runs uh, throughout his life. Uh, 
when he was a graduate student in Italy in the 1930s, he, he worked on Mussolini's policies to promote reproduction of Italians. This was a fascist around the world, love to promote these population policies. And while he had a lot of numbers and equations for, for the thesis, he was really interested in looking at the ways in which particularly women, in a sense, practiced uh, Mussolini's policies, not in the way that the regime wanted. So he was always looking at the cunning of individuals. And in order to get that, you had to, to look at their mundane, everyday things and not always begin with some great big theory or concept. Right. To, to be clear, he was studying the impact of Mussolini's policies. He himself was not working on or behalf Mussolini, of Mussolini. No, absolutely he was dedicated not. He was anti-fascist. A, for, yeah. Throughout his life, yes. <laughs> <laughs> this idea um, of the small, the petite day, yeah. right, uh, as you refer to it in your book, can you give us a, a simple example of that within economics uh, before we talk a little more about his personality? So within economics... Yes, a, a good example um, that that pops up actually pretty early on in a moment in his life in which he is becoming known as a development economist. So maybe we can get into what development economics is is all about eventually. But in the 1950s, he's living in Colombia in South America, working on development projects associated with the World Bank. World Bank, known for great big, you know, damming rivers and uh, building train stations and rail systems. Swooping in with a lot of resources. Uh, lots of money, yeah. To help, uh, produce growth. Uh, That's in a right. Region the, of the mega world. project, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and Hirschman was really skeptical of that way of operating. And he, one of the things he kept pointing to was just drop down a bunch of uh, scales and look at how individual farmers, entrepreneurs, construction companies are adapting to life, trying to promote the common good through individual actions. And what was important for him then was what was working in the Colombian economy, not what was working. Development economists are all obsessed with pathologies and obstacles and constraints. And Hirschman kept saying, yeah, but why don't you just change around what's going well and support that? Public policies should be oriented towards helping people do what they're already doing, what their capacities are already allowing them to do, and figuring out what the constraints are from their perspective rather than some giant concept. And he went on to write a, a book that became a classic in development economics called um, Strategy of Economic Development, not Theory of Economic Development. Mm -hmm. Uh, with an eye to starting from the premise that sometimes what people do gives you clues about what public policy should look like. Yeah, I love this idea. Uh, we're going to talk about the strategy for economic development in a second. But before that, I actually want to talk about Hirschman's relationship to doubt and specifically how uh, he arrived at this idea because of his ongoing dialogue with his brother-in-law named uh, Eugenio Colorni. I might be mispronouncing that. Nice. Uh, I apologize to his memory. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But he thought that doubt could be liberating. And there's this chapter in your book, Proving Hamlet Wrong. So the idea that Hamlet uh, was frozen by his doubts uh, and it meant that he wouldn't be able to do anything. Yeah. Hirschman was the exact opposite. He thought doubt could spur you to act. Can you just tell us more about that? Yeah. 
So if you put yourself in the context of the mid-1930s, Mussolini in power in Italy, where Colorni, his brother-in-law, was active in the Italian underground, Hirschman himself in exile as a Jew driven out of uh, Germany, uh, where Hitler is in power, both of them quite skeptical of uh, most or a lot of what was passing as anti-fascist thinking from the left, which was very Marxist. Big schema about class conflict and revolution and the conditions for social change and and so while Marxists were debating whether or not the objective conditions were right for overthrowing fascism, these two, and others as well, I should say, of which they were part of, of a circle, many of them Italian, who were skeptical of grand theories that you had to know everything, including all the preconditions for change before changing anything. And in fact, they believed that there were times in which acting could and, and engaging in would allow you to see things anew so that action could precede the knowledge. Action not only could precede the knowledge, but it could give you new knowledge if you were open-minded enough. And so in a way, they were blurring the boundaries between you know, this high-level intellectual uh, world of big theories and every day. And so the skeptical attitude was one of the seams of his optimism, that you could change things by intervening in the world, being open to the possibility of, among other things, being wrong and learning from your action. And so there was a dialectic, one might say, between acting and thinking, knowledge of the world and being in the world, which was also, just going back to the Columbia years, why his way of conceptualizing economic development was based on on observing and being in the world, changing things, and then revising the theories that you had. I guess that has to be related to the impossibility of ever pinning him down ideologically. I don't remember in your book anywhere where you call him a, a pure capitalist or a pure socialist or anything like that or anywhere else on the spectrum. He he seemed almost allergic to those kinds of labels. Yeah, he he, he was. He for many people on the left, they saw him as a betrayer uh, in some ways. That comes out in the reaction to the last chapter he writes in a book called The Rhetoric of Reaction, in which he includes the left as also intransigent in the way they think, and also by the right. But one of the curious things that about his thinking is this syncretic, amalgamated style. In a way, he takes from liberalism uh, the importance of the individual, and he takes from socialism the importance of the common good, and he's always trying to keep them in dialogue with each other. So part of his allergy to the big isms was driven by his yearning to find a way of thinking that wasn't just either or. And that's why if you look at the title of, his, of a lot of his books, the conjunctions are very important. It's mm-hmm. not passions or interests. It's passions and interests. He's trying to find ways to bring these what look like antagonistic forces together and to a more complex version of ourselves. That's a disposition also of his thinking that's very important. Uh, you collected a series of his essays uh, after you published Worldly Philosopher. 
one of them is an essay by Hirschman that introduces the concept of possibilism. Yeah. Right now, while we're talking about his intellectual approach to the social sciences and to his study of history and philosophy, I want to just ask you to introduce the concept of possibilism for us. Uh, what is it and how did he get there? Like, how did he yeah. come up with it? Well, he, he gets it from his wife who gets it from Kierkegaard. Uh, <laughs> so that's how the, he quite gets quite a lineage. Yes. <laughs> She had studied philosophy uh, and literature and had a very important influence on his thinking. And just as an aside on the matter of scale, their shared affection for the short story, for instance, uh, was very important. But that was the philosophical and literary origin, again, to put him in his moment, if in the mid-30s these were dark days. uh, By the late 1960s, Hirschman was getting a little concerned that, say, the threads of modern society were beginning to come apart. And uh, he saw a lot of his students in, uh, he was teaching at the time at Harvard, being tempted by siren calls of uh, revolution and insurrection, which he was very sympathetic with. And it's worth saying he was very closely tied to Latin America at the time, and concerned that many of his colleagues who were progressives in Latin America were feeling the appeal of, particularly of the Cuban Revolution. And Hirschman, going back to his anti, he was a very close reader of Karl Marx. He was always among his, the skepticisms of the isms was of communism. He was a little concerned about this appeal. And in a way, deep down, if you could summarize his life into one thing, is he is maybe our most important theorist of reform. Mm-hmm. Not just as what's left over between reaction and revolution. It is its own space, and it produces its own way of thinking. And the possibilist is the reformer. The possibilist is the one who sees in a world filled with constraints and impossibilities and obstacles and words that we hear all the time nowadays, let's say a whole different cognitive style that says what is possible, and let's start from that premise. So he writes this essay in the late uh, 1960s introducing that style of thinking doesn't get a lot of traction at the time um, except amongst his followers but in a way it's 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 a model of of thinking about not what we can't do but what we can do Uh, i'm going to tell you something personal now as well because uh i am in fact the son of cuban exiles who left uh, in the years immediately following the cuban revolution and uh, because of that i also want to talk about Albi Hirschman, the exile. He was a very different kind of exile, right? Left Berlin when he was just 17 years old, spent a lot of time in Europe in the anti-fascist resistance. We'll talk later about his own physical, personal bravery, Mm -hmm. right? Right now, I want to talk about the fact that, uh, and you write this in your book, he did not wear his exile on his sleeve like a badge of honor or something. Mm -hmm. He was, if anything, in many cases quite a willing exile. He saw exile as an opportunity to see the world differently. That's right. In a way, he didn't really describe himself as an exile, though he was an exeter and could not go back. But he didn't see himself as a pariah in the same way that, say, 
say somebody of the same generation and from very similar origins, Hannah Arendt would have seen herself as uh, driven out of Germany at the same time. And, and their, their lives, uh, in a sense, follow similar arcs, though they have very different dispositions. What Hirschman tended to do as an exile was when he arrived in a country, first it was France, then it was England, then it was Spain, then it was Italy, then it was back to France, then it was the United States, then it was Colombia, then it was back to the United States, we keep going, is rather than uh, carrying the baggage uh, and the weight of the world that he brought with him, uh, he happily tried to absorb the world that he encountered. And that's why in his thinking, it's very, it's a, a melange, a syncretism, a combination of French, Italian, Spanish, Latin American, American, English, and underneath it all, German foundations. He was a real cosmopolitan. He wasn't a German in exile, even though he always spoke with a German accent in every language except French. It was he was completely fluent in French, but he was a cosmopolitan. You have to remember he so he grows up in Weimar, Berlin, at a time where the idea of being open to the world's cultures was extremely important. In fact, he went to a French Huguenot school, which was had been set up by fugitive Protestants leaving France. And he always then had an affection for, in a sense, the other, the person who had been displaced, and very happily took on that role in order to bring the world into himself in some way. Let's talk now about uh, the book that you mentioned earlier, uh, Strategy of Economic Development. Sure. Um, one of the undercurrents in Hirschman's thinking was that things that others would consider to be problems or obstacles very often contained their own solutions within themselves, right? That's a very abstract thing to say, so let's talk a little bit more concretely. But when it came to economic development, Hirschman believed that obstacles were very useful for a couple of reasons. One was that it forced the people who live there to make important economic decisions, which otherwise they might be deprived of that experience, right? But also obstacles very often contained useful information about where resources should be sent. Absolutely. And in fact, in some respects, we should create obstacles, creating pressure points, forcing us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do. One of the core theories in strategy is this idea that what is most scarce in developing countries is not capital. It's not resources. These are the, the obstacle to development is we don't have enough capital, therefore we should lend money or we should create more foreign direct investment. That was Ragnar Nurks at the time. Lending money was the argot of USAID and so on and so forth. Yeah, that was the common wisdom. Hirschman did not agree with that. Did not agree with that. Uh, didn't say that you know there was a, a, a complete surfeit of capital around for people. But the solution to development is to find that which is most scarce and work on that. That which is the source of the largest of the constraints, not as a pathology or as an impossibility, but as you put it, the place where you direct your resources. And for him, it was decision-making capacity. That in the developing process, what you really wanted to, to do was to put people into situations in which they had to learn to make decisions better. Mm -hmm. That was key. And so when you 
simulate the growth process, what you're really doing is putting people into positions where they have to make decisions, trade-offs. Do I put my money into buying bricks or uh, tiles or uh, whatever it might be? And that's why he favored something called unbalanced growth, not balanced growth. That balance, The balanced growth theories, which were the, it was the orthodoxy of the time, were trying to solve all problems simultaneously in all sectors, driving things forward. Why? Because you couldn't trust people to learn how to make decisions because if you let them make the decisions, they would, I could be vulgar here and it won't be, they would just mess it up. This was the pessimist's view. So you couldn't trust people, and therefore the planners had to move in with their their money and their expertise and map it out for people and then welcome them to modernity. It's a very uh, jingoistic approach to development that was kind of in vogue at the time and that Hirschman fought against. I wonder if uh, he derived a lot of these insights just from the fact that he spent so much time on the ground in these countries rather than theorizing about them yeah. using economics textbooks or whatever. Yeah. I mean, there's no question that, that in a way, he, he had never been formally trained as a development economist. His training in economics was itself a little slim and patchy. <laughs> that turned out to be very helpful. A hindrance to his career in some respects. At uh, some points, we maybe we can get into that. But it helped that he didn't have an orthodox view. But he chose that, in fact, because just to roll back to the 1930s, when he goes to the London School of Economics, he spends a year, it's the year in 1930s, 35, 36, it's the year that Keynes's general theory appears. And it's all the rage. And all of his classmates are buying the book up. He gets himself a copy of the book. Is he interested in spending time with Keynes and learning Keynesian economics? Not really. Is he himself part of the anti-Keynesian movement with the hotbed was in the London School of Economics at the time? No. He went and did other things. He was never interested in the mainstream currents that people, I shouldn't say never, but but he he always looked at things from the margins. He was uh, a little bit detached in that sense. That's right. And currents. so when he goes to Columbia, he's not there as an academic. He's there as an advisor in the development process. And even then, he kind of defects from the World Bank model that's being advocated at the time. And he's given a lot of lateral to go out and do his own things. And he even spends a few years as a freelance consultant. Uh, and it's in as a freelance consultant that he comes up with this idea of unbalanced growth, disequilibria as fertile, not pathological. And... Uh, he really, in a sense, had pushed far out to the margins of, beyond the academy, in fact, and then swoops back in with that book, Strategy. Yeah. Uh, here's how Hirschman, later after it was published, uh, described the theme of strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was uh, from a passage in Exit, Voice, and Loyalty, a later book, which mm -hmm. we're also going to talk about. Uh, but this is, again, this is about strategy of economic development. Quote, development depends not so much on finding optimal combinations for given resources and factors of production as on calling forth and enlisting for development purposes resources and abilities that are hidden, scattered, or badly utilized, unquote. Hirschman really had a fondness for the unseen, for things that economists would miss. Yes, the hidden hand. Yes, uh, yeah, I'm glad you picked it. It's a great quote. It's the cunning of history. 
he was enough of still that early Hegelian training that he had gotten when you know he was a teenager in Berlin uh, remained there throughout that the world is not what you think it is uh, and he was not a literalist uh, even though he was very literary he believed that there were multiple things going on always at any given time that we ourselves as individuals are complex and trying to resolve things inside ourselves and what we exhibit is only part of the story and so for him the idea that there's always a possibility latent behind that the job say of the development economist and you know to his dying day he always believed, he was an economist i mean and he believed and he to be clear, he was trained in economics, he was and, he, and, and he, he was adored. better at statistics than people gave him credit for. Absolutely, and he adored. He was, he, his ultimate passion was economics, uh, even though some economists might not recognize him as an economist. It was deep for him, but was to bring out that latent possibility, not to impose a new reality on people. In fact, he went so far as to say that there are times in which we unconsciously hide things. He had a notion of what's called what he called the hiding hand, so not the hidden hand, but something that we do psychologically or to ourselves to discount the cost of a project that we might want to do, an investment we might want to make, a book we might want to write, a podcast we might want to <laughs> produce in order to mobilize ourselves to do it. Only to find out, as we often do in life, it's a lot of work. A lot of work. A lot more costly (laughs) than we thought. And had we allowed ourselves to know what we really knew all along, we never would have done it, and we never would have learned from it. And there's the trick. It's it's not just that we get mobilized to do something that we hide the costs of ex ante. It's looking back and realizing what we've done and learning from it. It's to to bring it full. 360 requires that added verb. And so, and, and a degree of reflexivity was required uh, really to make it work because otherwise you don't learn the lessons of it. I want to turn now to uh, the passions and the interests. Yeah. I'm jumping around a bit chronologically, but I'm doing it because I got to tell you, I really fell hard for this book, yeah, yeah. as I suspect a lot of people have uh, who encounter it for the first time. Uh, Although, but this let was me make a, a recent plug. experience for me. I, I, so, strategy. It's worth rereading all of So now pause on passions. Go back and read some of the other stuff. The The thing about Hirschman is second and third readings of the same things yield very different reactions. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway. No, I'll bet. Here, I want to start with this because this is a very carefully uh, structured and carefully organized book. The passions and the interests, and by the way, the subtitle is Political Arguments for Capitalism Before Its Triumph. Listeners should keep that in mind because we're going to come back to the importance of that subtitle. You write in the afterword that, in a way, Hirschman was not just in conversation with his readers, but in conversation with the ancients. And you can see that very clearly in this book. So before we actually go through the argument, tell us what you meant by that. Yeah, in a way he... For us, uh, for me and you, he's mediating between, one might say, Machiavelli and us. He's introducing us to a conversation. He was very fond 
of a letter that Machiavelli once wrote to a friend while Machiavelli was himself in exile, had been driven out of Florence, of a dream that Machiavelli had of spending the day going out and gathering uh, food in the countryside to survive and then arriving home in the evening, getting out of his grubby clothes, putting on the proper robes that one would that one would do in honor of the ancients and sitting down at the dining room table and having dinner with the great philosophers of the past. And Hirschman liked that image, that you were always in your head involved in arguments, arguments with old arguments. And that key word of arguing was very important also for him throughout a lot of his work. And he was arguing with us. A lot of his writing style is deceptively argumentative. I mean, it's yes, it's seductive. It draws you in. We fall for it. But he's also provoking us to think and to have a discussion with him, which is why he didn't like intransigence, right? And he would not necessarily like the word conversation, you know, sort of with Clinton-esque. We're all involved in some conversation. He, he believed in something a little more edgy, right, over big questions, real disagreements, but being open to the possibility that you might be wrong. So it was a fantasy world for him, but it was also a literary practice. And in fact, I think uh, a good place to begin uh, discussing his argument is with Machiavelli. Philosophers struggled before Machiavelli to describe people as they are rather than as they should be. Machiavelli thought that any assessment of how statecraft was conducted required an understanding of how people are, right? This was obviously very influential to Hirschman, uh, but it's also where the important points of his argument really begin in this book. Yes, absolutely. So we uh, often call this realism, that you begin your concept of the world from, uh, going back to a refrain we've had now, uh, of what you observe, what actually happens. And so you don't start from the, from the vantage point of an alternative that you would like the world to be. That doesn't necessarily mean that you give up hope. Uh, far from it. But you, you begin from the premise of, of what the world is. Right? So that's his realism. And that's, that's in a sense, also his, his pragmatism. And Machiavelli was very important for Hirschman from very early on, uh, from the time he began to learn Italian in the mid-30s uh, to the end of his life. He was always in a conversation in his head and in his texts with Machiavelli. But what Machiavelli was was harping on about that Hirschman observed was his concern with the avarice, the venality, the passions of power. Machiavelli was our first great theorist of, let's say, a non-theocratic way of understanding the state. But for him, it was the ways in which rulers uh, used and abused power against uh, the ruled. How could you find a way of checking or restraining political authority? Machiavelli was having a hard time seeing that come along, but he was the first to stick a pin in that as a problem. Mm -hmm. right. uh, it's also important to note that Hirschman's story here begins with Machiavelli because for so many of us, at least until we encounter Hirschman, 
a story about the origins of capitalism, uh, the intellectual origins of capitalism, uh, that story begins and sometimes ends with Adam Smith, right? right? Adam Smith uh, is a participant in this story, but so much happens before that, before he writes The Wealth of Nations. And Hirschman is essentially unearthing this history, this intellectual history uh, that led to the justifications for capitalism that so many people have forgotten about. And it started not as an argument for how to make the economy better or commercial activity better. It started as a political argument. How do you make politics better? That's right. Because you needed to find a, a formula that would restrain rulers. Not just rulers. The flip side was... For a long time, individuals were thought of as themselves naturally when unrestrained by, once freed from religious and moral constraints, unbridled, they would go wild with avarice and greed. So the personal passions were also suspect. This is why we invented God, right? To impose an order that neither rulers nor the ruled could obey. And Adam Smith is the inheritor of a century of dialogue about how to get past this problem. You can't understand Adam Smith, whom Hirschman also read over and over again throughout his life from the time he was a undergraduate in his first semester at the University of Berlin in you know the fall of 1932, was to explain Smith not Smith as the great inventor of uh, our way of thinking about capitalism, but rather someone who inherited this long legacy of arguing about capital, trying to sort out the problem, a way of thinking of, of the marketplace as a space that would tame the passions of rulers and restrain rulers, while at the same time, through the beauty of self-interest, constrain the avarice and the greed of individuals and, in fact, turn it into something of a virtue. Mm-hmm. For Hirschman, there was a tragedy in this narrative. The tragedy of Adam Smith was that having discovered the beauty of this argument about capitalism that combined the common good with the individual, let's say, a recognition of ourselves as complex beings with passions and interests— And we needed both to animate the other. Otherwise, and this was the fear, uh, we would turn into some lifeless, automatic, utility-maximizing agent, which is what economics, stripping out the passion side, turned us all into interest-carrying agents. And that was the tragedy of Smith, that the moral philosopher took this century-long argument and turned it into a creed that could be repurposed for capitalism in its triumph. And here is the kicker, after its triumph. Uh-huh. There's a book written in the 1970s in the middle of the crisis of the 90, with a lot of anxiety about what was going to happen to the capitalist world. Hirschman was, in a sense, trying to say, If we go back and look at the ancients and their arguments about capitalism, we might find a different moral purpose to our system. So the question, did we hear that message? 
Right. In fact, uh, Hirschman used a very strong word that Smith obliterated this history that came before him, partly through a trick of language that we're going to talk about. But before we get there, I want to make sure that we don't make the same mistake. Let's talk about those those predecessors of Smith. And here's how I'm going to try to set it up. Okay. Okay, so after Machiavelli, people start to realize, especially in the 17th century, that, as you said, religious precepts aren't enough to constrain the violent or the avaricious ruler, oh, right? The opposite, in fact. And, it was under religious guise that we're in the middle <laughs> yeah, of the sometimes even worse. people are tearing each other apart. Yeah. Sometimes even worse, right? And so a new theory begins to be developed by the thinkers at the time, but it took different shapes, right? I shouldn't say a new theory, different theories, competing theories yes. about the passions, right? When we talk about passions, by the way, I want to make sure that we explain it. We're talking about various passions, not one. So there's the passion for glory, yeah. the passion for dominance, yes. the passion for conquest and power, yeah. right? Then there is the passion for material gain, material wealth, um, you know, to have accumulation, right? right? All of which had been kind of stigmatized in some ways. Considered vices. Exactly. Um, There's a lot of normative language in all of this, which actually Hirschman was trying to say, let's not be so judgmental. Exactly. And so what ends up happening is that different theories begin to be developed for how to restrain these passions. One theory was that you could repress the passions, right? Uh, And this, again, relied too much on the state to do its job, right? And it often, I think, also started relying again on religion, right, and its failings. So that didn't quite work. The other two uh, ended up being sort of in competition and still are in many ways in competition to this day. The second is harnessing the passions, right? And this was uh, something discussed by Pascal, but it anticipated the writings of Smith later on. And then finally, this is where we partly get to the title of the book and where we start to arrive at, I think, what I would consider to be one of the book's intellectual heroes, Montesquieu. Uh, There's the idea of setting the passions against each other, that one passion could be a countervailing force against the other passion, right? So this is the setup, okay? Repressing the passions, probably not going to work. Tried that, didn't work, right? Why doesn't repression work? Well, isn't repression something that we also don't want, but it also reinforces the passion for power, the passion for glory, and all really these other things. really get rid of it. And, It'll you know, find an outlet somewhere. Right. Yeah, right. exactly. And it come out in an even more pernicious and problematic way. Right. Also, that, that one to me seems like the one that sort of most obviously had been tried throughout history right. and didn't work. Right. <laughs> uh, so we have and this— And it was certainly not going to work with the modern age dawning. Right. I mean, unless we really wanted to be in cahoots with the Hitlers of the world, right? right? Which Hirschman, Democrat to his <laughs> bone, right? That's right. So then let's start talking a little bit about how passions could offset each other, yeah. right? You can think of some modern examples, like the way that, for instance, somebody might set patriotism against religious fanaticism, right? One replaces or dominates the other. There's the idea of how, like, the pursuit of material goods could offset sloth, right? Another vice against a vice. I'm probably missing some, but the idea that instead of going for glory and power and fame, you just try to accumulate a lot of goods, right? There we go. Those are a few of the competing passions. Right. Okay. So there's back to the conjunction and. We want passions and interests. 
the key to the formula is any swing to excess passion, excess personal accumulation, excess pursuit of glory, excess implementation of power will always produce the swing back. Right. That in a free world with free individuals, there is a a, a natural tendency for Hirschman towards an unstable balance of these things. And you ne- needed to let them swing around, right? And be tolerant of the foibles of human, of, of our imperfect selves, yeah. right? Instead of trying to control it all the time, then we go back to our master planners or our big ismists who have a theory and want everybody to conform to it. Let me give a, an interesting example that Hirschman brings up uh, for later on. Uh, it's an example given by Alexander Hamilton yeah. in defending the idea of not having term limits, right? He says that on the one hand, you might have like an avaricious president or an avaricious ruler, right, uh, who wants, who might, you know, stoop to doing, you know, things that are uh, constitute a certain amount of malfeasance in order to make money or line his pockets or whatever. But if you don't have term limits and he has to run for office again, then his passion for a good name or a good reputation would overcome that other passion, that other appetite for like accumulation. That's just a kind of a clever example. But here's where we get to the first kind of trick of language or change in language that is subtle and yet has massive importance, which is that the passion that in the past was considered a vice, right, avarice, greed, accumulation of material goods, starts to be referred to as interest rather than as a passion, right? It has a kind of a, a softening effect, yes. you know, and because of that softening effect, it gets pride of place amongst all the other passions, right? And now you have a theory of passions against the passions, but this passion is relatively harmless. So why not Pref- prefer that one? It's uh, not only harmless. This is manipulable, controllable. It's something that you can channel into, for Adam Smith, right, the welfare of all through the pursuit of individual self-interest. That was the beauty. Everybody would get wealthy if all individuals just pursued their own self-interest. Now, many people would object to that representation of Adam Smith. There's actually much more going on. But Hirschman was making this argument that Adam Smith draws out of Montesquieu. This idea, say what's often called the du commerce thesis, the softening commerce thesis, that individuals trading with each other are less apt to fight with each other. Once they recognize their mutual self-interest, if you just let them go, right? and once they've had that experience, the, the virtuous cycle uh, can kick in. Uh, that Adam Smith sees this insight and, in a sense, runs with it. Yeah. The problem, back to the tragedy here, is loses sight of the necessity of the other. There's a key word that you use that's very important, which is restraint, that the restraint has to not come from the outside of the theory, from the state, from the pope, from the president. It has to come from within the theory itself, that the passion is the restraint on the interest and the interests are the restraint on the passion. It's that pendular model that I referred to. But that's why if we go back, so you like the idea that this was a word game, and it was a word game for Hirschman. This was about 
semantics and arguments people were having with each other about the meanings of words and repurposing and reinventing stigmatizing old words and taking stigmata out of some new words that they might want to use to put them into circulation. Yeah. So he was, I'm going to go out on a limb here, the first to say that the triumph of capitalism had to first come as a linguistic achievement. Yes. And here's a quote from Hirschman uh, that I want to read about this change from passion to interest, that linguistic change. Mm -hmm. He says, quote, in general, the story told up to now illustrates how unintended consequences flow from human thought and from the shape it is given through language, no less than from human actions, unquote. To me, this is just a beautiful insight about the way that contemporary observers mm -hmm. can miss during their lifetimes a change of world historical importance yeah. just because it's subtle. And even though they themselves participated in it, it's incredible. Well, that's the human condition. I mean, we're, we, we don't, in a sense, know the full meaning of these things uh, until it's all, it's all done with. But there are a couple of key words in, in what you just read. I mean, one is the importance of unintended consequences. And this is where having an open mind matters a lot. You won't actually see the unintended consequences if you aren't open to the possibility that your action or your arguments might yield them. Mm -hmm. So open-minded, what he called an open cognitive style was extremely important to get the insight that an argument or that an action might have. Right? And the other one just is he's pointing his finger at the importance of ideas. This may seem self-evident. This is an idea show, so it's <laughs> not. But in the wider world where we think of people pursuing their interests and the importance of incentives and the importance of institutions, in a sense, miss the third leg, the tripod, that it's, it's not enough just to have institutions or interests. You have to have the ideas that help make sense of that world, especially if you want to make it any better. Right, yeah. So he, he's making a case for the importance of intellectual history, the importance of big ideas and small ideas in, in world affairs. Yeah, one of those points that Hirschman continues to emphasize, in part because it was believed uh, by Montesquieu, was still this idea of passion set against the passion. Yeah. It's just that the passion for accumulation yeah. still has pride of place. You mentioned du commerce, right? Yeah. The idea that commercial activity has a kind of pacifying effect on the activity of the people who uh, are on the mentality, on the livelihood, on the, the way that people live mm -hmm. for those who engage in it, right? There were other ways too. One was that because of commerce, we ended up with the invention of uh, the bill of exchange, right? Mm -hmm. Which meant that wealth could be transferred in a way that was very hard mm -hmm. for a sovereign to confiscate That's and right. enrich uh, himself or herself right. or the state. Another was that through international relations, it was much harder for the sovereign to impoverish its own people by debasing the currency because now you had global trading partners right. who would see through it, right. right? So it had, again, this kind of uh, unseen or unanticipated at the time yeah. pacifying effect on society. Right. And finally, it just – it encouraged more trading and less conquest if That's you could right. get rich by trading instead That's of right. by you know conquering another – that's land. Right. It didn't end conquest, certainly, but it may have helped. That's right. And, and actually, so 
that's uh, an old concern of his. You'll remember from reading the biography that his first book is about Hitler's foreign economic policy making and how Hitler's abuse of neighbors, particularly to the East, locked the uh, weaker neighbors into this trading relationship that made Hitler feel as if empire would work. And so he's been thinking about, well, how can we have a system of interdependence and foreign trade where large powers can sit beside small powers and each regard each other in a virtuous way? He's been thinking about this for a very long time. And of course, he is worried about it in the midst of, of a crisis of the 1970s that we shouldn't turn our backs on on the idea of interdependence, that actually interdependence is what creates that family of restraining powers where, that allow us to, let's say, do commerce together instead of uh, fight uh, with each other. And, you know, we might say now pushing forward, he was he was in a sense a kind of free trader. Um, he believed in relatively open markets, his individualism. This goes back to our why for some people on the left, he was a bit of a problem because he was a critic of dependency theory. <laughs> he was a critic of, of economic nationalism because he believed that this opened the door for these other problems that you were talking about. Yeah. Just in the interest of time, I'm going to uh, simplify this part of the book and sort of give it the framework of Montesquieu versus Adam Smith. So uh, the places where they agreed and then the places where they disagree. Okay? okay. So Montesquieu and a few of the thinkers that sort of thought a little bit differently than him, but on this matter largely agreed, right? Those thinkers and then Adam Smith and his band of thinkers all mostly agreed on the following three things, as Hirschman wrote. One was uh, that commerce functioned like a machine with interdependent parts, as you just said, right? The other is that they all emphasize the importance of the distinction between movable and unmovable property. Again, the inability or the difficulty of the state to confiscate property was a big deal. And then finally, that incompetent or bad policies from the state could have a damaging effect on economic progress. But here's where they disagreed. And this is where we really start to get into some interesting issues, right? Montesquieu uh, and his Kang, if I can, if I'm, if I'm not risking insulting all of them, believed that commerce would have a withering away effect on the potential for the state uh, to abuse its people, right? Or that it had a kind of a pacifying effect. Adam Smith wasn't so sure. He was actually more pessimistic. Uh, he actually believed that, um, no, you needed good policies to help the economy grow for its own sake, but that it wouldn't necessarily help with the state. But where they philosophically disagreed was in this idea of one passion counteracting the other. Smith had a different view, which was that all of the other passions essentially fed into the desire to accumulate wealth. And in that sense, they were not just sublimated, but satisfied in a way. And so Smith wrote this other great book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, right? So he understood the passions, right? But he had a very different view of how they played off against one another. Yeah. Montesquieu and I'm pretty sure Hirschman disagreed with this. Yes. I think you caught this very well. In fact, one might say that uh, Hirschman is, let's say, much more sympathetic to Montesquieu yeah. than he was to Smith. That's what you're picking up. And that is very important. It's going back to the idea that 
not all passions can be reconfigured into interests, right? Which was, which was what, in some senses, Smith had done to the insight, right? Which was to say that we can convert all of these things into a new, a, a new mobilizer, a new force, right? Which was our self-interest. Now the self, right, could, in a sense, be a more simplified version released into the world is carrying these urges right to accumulate and, and 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 to maximize their own individual satisfactions and leave the passions behind the problem of course and this is why the institutions matter that if you just let people do this the incentive to collude the incentive to say band together and to exploit the less fortunate of the world would be irresistible, mm-hmm. right? So you did have to then create some external rules and constraints in the form of some sovereign that would prevent the individuals from doing this. That's why he always said, you can't just let merchants organize the world. They'll just make a big deal for themselves and, uh, in a sense, make rents off everybody else's backs. For Montesquieu, he had a different idea that if you could get this ideal almost to work and for individuals and for communities to be these unstable, passionate, self-interested and interested, passionate figures, their own internal restraining forces would do the work that the state and institutions that otherwise had to do for Adam Smith. On their point of agreement, it was it's absolutely true. Mobile property, the the bill of exchange, the ability of merchants to be able to move their assets out of reach of the state finally forced the state to its knees. So long as the state could go after immobile property in the form of land or people and just grab what it needed to wage wars, it did not have to restrain itself. But the minute a merchant could pop their money out to another city or to his cousin in Amsterdam, uh, suddenly the state had to reckon with the limits of their own authority. So that's why competition and mobility were extremely important. We're going to get eventually to exit voice and loyalty. But here is a case where the exit option for moneyed men created a constraint on states. You mentioned a second ago the idea that there was another trick of language that Adam Smith used. Uh, I want to make it explicit because I said earlier there were two big tricks of language that Hirschman cites. In the case of Smith, it was to start using passions and interests interchangeably as synonyms, right? Where essentially he obliterated, to use that word again, the entire history of the arguments that came before him by essentially arguing as if those two things were the same. Because what what Hirschman, what he sees in Montesquieu that he wants to keep is the tension. He doesn't want to eradicate the tension. He doesn't want to remove the, he, 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 the tension is what keeps it, make, makes it work, right? It's back to disequilibrium. It's back to imbalance. There's nothing wrong with the tension. It can go terribly wrong, of course, <laughs> but for him, that's that Montesquieu has has his finger on something that's extremely important. It's even more important that there be tension than it be passions or interests. Right? Yeah, 
Uh, and then here's where Hirschman effectively transcends the argument between Montesquieu and Smith uh, and their affiliated thinkers. He finds a couple of other thinkers, one kind of obscure now and one not so obscure, right? So Tocqueville, I think, is pretty well known. Uh, Adam Ferguson, a bit less known, especially because he was overshadowed by uh, his Scottish Enlightenment uh, colleagues, right? But he finds in these thinkers uh, an argument that is based, I think, largely on societal cyclicality, if that makes sense, right? So in the case of Tocqueville, he recognized, as Montesquieu did, uh, that commercial activity, capitalism, yeah. could in fact have this pacifying effect. The difference was that Tocqueville also saw ways in which it also contained the seeds of its own deterioration, right? right? This, to me, was fascinating. Uh, the explicit arguments he made were, number one, that if you have a lot of people acting in the commercial sphere, it meant that those who wanted to pursue power were a little bit more free to do that without as much competition, yeah. right? But the other was that if you think of the economy as an interdependent machine, then every now and again, because it's complicated, it's going to break down, and then you might have a citizenry that turns to a strongman type to fix it, and he'll pretend he can fix it in order to gain the power, and then you'll still be stuck with uh, somebody in power who uh, potentially is abusive. This is a great uh, and very interesting and uh, so transcendent argument. So he's writing this in the mid-1970s. He's spent a long time observing Latin America in particular, but he's also come out of a, a long experience with fascism. Who do you think he has in mind in 1976-77 when he's writing this book? Uh, is he looking at Chile? Yes. He has Pinochet in his sights. And he's back and forth all the time to Santiago, talking to his friends, his colleagues, and his collaborators there, where, by the way, Chile is being treated as a laboratory for what we would now call neoliberal economics. At the time, it was, I mean, they called it Chicago boy economics, for a certain way of thinking about homo economicus. And this appalls Hirschman. It, it's, now, he does not blame Adam Smith for this, but he's trying to figure out how did we get from mid-18th century theories, uh, debates, and arguments about capitalism to this nightmare in Chile, right? And it's that voyage, his, his concern with the narrowed way in which the actor has now been turned into a rational sort and the impossibility of thinking of let's say, social betterment through forms of collective action. Everything had to be individualized. Everything had to be privatized, decontrolled. That was the, that was the, the argument uh, at the time. Still has some legs nowadays. And he was trying to say, that, but look at what this leads to, as you say, the strong man, the autocrat. Because faced with our disenchantments of the world, right, we'll throw in our lots with the great savior, of the left and of the right. And again, Hirschman, the man of the exalted middle, trying to find a way to say there is actually a redemptive reason why we want the the reformist road. It's not because we can't do any better, right? It's actually the one that avoids the carnage and including the individual carnage, having to decide for each one of us, whether we're going to be self-interested or passionate, yeah. right? 
don't force us to split our hearts in two, right? That is the road to to nowhere. Either thinking that Toys R Us is going to create utopia, which it never does, and disenchantment, or that the strong man will deliver us to, to heaven. Yeah, I got to tell you also, um, in part because a lot of what you just said, this is the section of the book where it went from excellent, surprising, informative history to something closer to the sublime, mm. right? I would have been pretty unsatisfied if he had just left it at Montesquieu thought this, yeah. Smith thought this, and Montesquieu was probably closer to right. Uh, yeah. He didn't. The idea that uh, you never really stop like yeah. the, the, these cycles, right? Yeah. And that the tension is always there, but that the tension is not necessarily something to be undone. Right. The tension is always useful. Yes. You know? That's right. And that's still our world. He's in, and going back to allowing us to have a reencounter with Montesquieu and Ferguson and, and and Machiavelli and others, so that we can think of ourselves in that argument, in those arguments, over the basic questions of life, right? And and to see that their reckoning with those tensions is an invitation for us to do exactly the same thing rather than try to get rid of it, right? Rather than try to think about solutions that eradicate uh, our ability to think of things with incongruities and paradoxes and things that don't work, but rather to say they produce the tensions, the resistances that produce more, just to go back to strategy, more bandwidth for making decisions, right? He also, in closing the book, chides Keynes and a few others a little bit. And I love this. And his point, which is also really interesting, Mm. was that, yes, yes, it's a cliche that history never quite repeats itself, although sometimes it rhymes. Everybody knows that, and that's largely true. Mm. But a lot of times it rhymes closely enough that the exact same ideas are reintroduced and everybody forgets that they had already been explored in the past. And because they think it's new, they're not aware of how history has either shown them to be flawed or the places where they might be right. And so when Keynes wrote something where he essentially, uh, you know, arrived by himself at the idea that perhaps commercial activity helps to restrain uh, some of the worst impulses, okay, and everybody greeted it as this like brilliant insight, Hirschman's point was, no, listen to me. If we're going to elevate the debate, you have to be aware of this earlier history yeah. that everybody forgets about because yeah. these things, these concepts have been argued about yeah. at length in the past. And there's a lot you need to be aware of if you're going to talk about them again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's it has three functions. One is to remind ourselves, in a sense, of a diminished scale of ourselves. We are how small we are in the big arguments from Plato onwards, um, and that's that's humbling. I mean, the, and and humility helps. Uh, the other is uh, in the course of the arguments over dinner with the ancients, we can realize how much we are we are actually arguing, and that nobody has a monopoly on on the truth. And and there is no orthodoxy. Back to your very first question, there isn't a school of Hirschman because he was very allergic to this idea of of a bounded certainty. He preferred complexity. 
He preferred contingency to certainty. Those are all very important uh, to him. I'd say the, the last thing, the third element to it is something he called the <laughs> sort of self in a self-joking way uh, the the first law of the social sciences which which is the minute you think you have a great explanation for how the world works it's obsolete <laughs> and, and, and going, that is the moment where it stops uh, applying stop, right it stops <laughs> applying and so the advantage of going back into the past of of humbling yourself and realizing you aren't the originators of these great arguments is to not believe so much in your theories. Skeptical, cautious, more modest in the claims that we make around, uh, uh, about the world. There's something very beguiling about Hirschman's prose in this way because in this, on one level, he just oozes with confidence. You know, you're reading this, he can roll out the Italian, the German, the Spanish, the French, throw in some Russian for some safe measure, and there is an aura of certainty uh, and confidence about the way he writes. But if you think about what he's asking us to do, it is, it's actually the opposite. It's to be much more hesitant about the claims that we tend to make in our world. You know, Nowadays, with television split screens barking at either side, it's... it's, it's maybe hard to remember that there was once a moment in which people were trying to say, let's have a healthy form of argumentation. In fact, the argument doesn't mean it's a fight over decibel levels. It can be about something else. I mean, I think it kind of feels like it's a lost art, the art of voice. Yeah. But that's what he's trying to get at. So my, my last question, yeah. uh, and it's not quite or only very distantly related to Hirschman uh, is actually about uh, your own recent work. You've been uh, writing about, I guess the the phrase is globalist history, um, but about history that's done from a very global point of view as opposed to a national point of view, how that has affected people's understanding of the world and then how that has been reflected back to history and then back again. Like, in other words, this this is kind of a self-perpetuating thing. The astonishing events of the last year or so, how has that changed essentially how you do your job and how you view your profession? Well, let me start on the first one then. Uh, So global history, yes, I I teach and and write about a a field called global history. My background is in Latin American history, economic history in particular. But I started to uh, write and work in the area that we now call global history more or less as an echo of globalization. I mean, as we saw the world uh, morphing into this new, it's hard to put great words to it anymore with the anti-globalist tide that we're getting, but uh, interdependent markets, people on the move, uh, ideas flowing across borders, beginning to realize that there was a whole other scale of human activity that needed to be talked about. Uh, And then, in fact, it went way back, uh, long before, but one might say, the Silk Road, uh, giving us the first real long-distance institutions and practices of people migrating, trading, converting, right up to the present. And that we've gone through multiple phases of globalization, by which I mean economic and social integration. And so, yes, I've been uh, you know, exploring the deep history of our present uh, in the last while. 
both in my teaching to undergraduates and graduate students at Princeton as well as in in, in writing. I would say just a one minor correction. Uh, you uh, could say not I was a, wrong in my no, no. description. Well, it's not, of, it's not, a, it's not a corrective. Okay. It's, okay. it's, it's a sort of <laughs> uh, that people often think that global means the nation state doesn't matter anymore. And all I would say is what actually going global allows you to do is to resignify the nation. That is that 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 nations and states acquire a new meaning and a new relevance to the world as it becomes more integrated. I think in the euphoric days of globalization, people often thought, well, we're living in a post-national world, a post-American world. I was always a little skeptical of this, in part because, this is going back to my Latin American, I always thought, well, actually, state institutions still really matter. Mm. Court systems, we need them to function, you know. Fiscal systems, they need to work. And until we have one world government, which is a long way away, we're going to need nation states. So, in fact, nation states are being summoned all the time to resolve the contradictions that globalization puts on societies. So what global does is to give us a new scale, in fact, to relocate the nation, see why in this new interdependent world it's important to, to think anew about nations and states. What do we make of the last year? Actually, there's a, there's a reason I, I wanted to ask you about yeah. this as well. And in particular, it has to do with your specialty on Latin America. Uh, we had an economist on the show named Sebastian Edwards sure. uh, a little while ago. So he's uh, a specialist in uh, macroeconomic populism. Yeah. And one of the things we discussed was that because I think a lot of people, but especially like, quote unquote, right thinking people, in advanced economies had this um, maybe implicit belief in continuous progress, maybe some hiccups, but that there would in general be a move in the direction of the values of liberal democracy, the global liberal order, that kind of thing. They maybe didn't have the experience or the expectation that somebody with an approach that at least uses some of the populist tactics of persuasion that, for instance, um, the Brexiteers and Donald Trump and the guy in the Netherlands, Wilders, right? They never expected that these ideas could win out in part because uh, there was this implicit belief that everything would keep moving in the same direction. People in Latin America, much less surprised with Sebastian's point. And I wonder if given your study of history, but also your specialty on Latin yeah. America, you were maybe less caught off guard than everybody else. Well, that's right. And that's it's and because my very first book, which compared Argentine and Canadian economic development, the integration creates new forms of inequality and exclusion. And the euphoria around globalization and, you know, Thomas Friedman and others thinking of this as a new elixir missed the point that some people with some kinds of assets will do much better than other kinds of people. And if you looked at the pattern of integration in Latin America in the 19th century and the turn of the 20th century, it's very clear that you create, while integrating Latin America into the world economy or Latin American bourgeoisies lead the path of integration, they also disjoint their internal economies. And if you don't handle this right, you can put your countries on the road to a lot of turmoil culminating in the Cuban revolution in Cuba or the rise of Perón in Argentina. So don't be too surprised if populists of the left and the right think they have a solution to this problem. Right. So yes, Latin America has a lot to tell us about the ways in which the unevenness of integration can produce 
effects that will come back to haunt us later on. And our blindness to inequality before 2008 was a big concern. The a blindness to, as Arlie Hochschild puts it, the strangers in our own lands, the, the people that we have estranged in the course of creating this cosmopolitan global world that I have to say, I mean, I have a lot of affection for on one level, we have to reckon with the costs. Jeremy Edelman, this has been a real treat, and we'll be back for part two, I promise you. Uh, but I thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> And that is the end of my chat with Jeremy Edelman. Send us an email at alphachat at ft.com or give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is plus one country code for those of our listeners overseas because we are in the U.S. Rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help people find out about us. I repeat that every episode, but it's true. And finally, show notes are at ft.com forward slash alphachat. The passions and interests of this podcast are overseen by the amazing producer and editor, Amy Keene. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.